there are many ways to understand the path of awakening. There are many metaphors used to to bring us to a realization of what it is that we're doing in spiritual practice. And so too in the Buddha's teachings there are many ways of understanding just what it is that we're doing here. But in all of these metaphors, in all of these ways of understanding, there is the reality behind it. And what is actually happening over the course of one's walking a spiritual path is the gradual realization of our condition at this moment in time and an understanding that the mind can develop, the mind can be enhanced, <clears throat> the mind can be en- enlightened to bring lightness into the mind. The Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology, has an understanding that the unawakened mind has within it, or is composed of, a number of factors of mind. Mental factors that go into and make up each moment of our experience. And a lot of them, in the unawakened mind, Uh, tend towards dullness and sleepiness and restlessness, confusion, um, inability to be present, uh, doubt, uh, disappointment, frustration, despair, hopelessness, low self-esteem, a very unbright, unawakened mind. And the way the Buddhist Abhidhamma, uh, Buddhist psychology understands the path of practice is that we gradually replace those factors of mind with their opposites or with factors of mind that oppose them so that sleepiness or dullness of mind is opposed by energy, clarity of mind. Doubt or confusion is opposed or, or overcome by faith or confidence. And the path of practice is seen as one of developing these positive and enhancing qualities of mind. <clears throat> there are many different uh, mental factors or diff- many different attributes or qualities to the mind. And we know them, we meet them every day. And sitting here today, we come in closer contact with them. As I've mentioned, there are the famous five hindrances or obstructions to a clear mind. Sleepiness or dullness, doubt and wavering in our ability to uh, proceed with confidence. 
restlessness or an agitated state of mind that cannot come into and stay with the present experience obstructs the mind from clearly being and seeing what's happening now. Or strong aversion, dislike, or wanting to get away from experience, particularly unpleasant experience, whether it's unpleasant mental or unpleasant physical experience. If we react to it strongly with aversion, we no longer see that experience clearly. Our mind is obstructed, unbright, unclear. And the same with desire, when a pleasurable experience is noticed, or when we have a pleasurable experience. Maybe it was the tofu pops at dinner time. Maybe you really like tofu pops. As soon as you get attached and really want that, you stop seeing clearly the nature of what it is that's happening. Desire can blind us to the nature of reality. And so we gradually and persistently and with great energy, as we come to notice the qualities of our mind that are darkening and hindering and obstructing clarity of vision, we gradually replace them moment after moment. And it's a very meticulous and requires considerable persistence to in each moment see what's present, replace the dark qualities with light qualities. In all of this vast exchange of energies and mental states and uh, factors of mind, there are five which are or become gradually become the controlling factors of mind. The factors that control the others and guide us along our spiritual journey. And in fact, they're called the five spiritual faculties of mind. And tonight I want to speak briefly about them and to talk about them in such a way that you begin to recognize them in your own practice. When they're present, and when they're not present. So that if you notice that you do not have these qualities in your mind, you can arouse them to enhance your clarity and your understanding. These five factors of mind have a relationship with each other where one is the cause for the arising of the second. The second is the cause for the arising of the third. The third is the cause for the arising of the fourth, and so on. And they develop in our practice in a cyclical and gradual way, each feeding the other. And the first of these factors of mind is confidence. Confidence is the basis for and the arousing of energy. 
or effort, the second spiritual faculty. Energy or effort is the cause for or the causal condition for the arising of mindfulness. Mindfulness, the ability to observe and to see clearly, is the cause for the arising of concentration or single-pointedness of mind. And when the mind is single-pointed and focused, we see into our experience more deeply, thereby gaining more knowledge or wisdom, the fifth of the spiritual faculties. Confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So I'll speak about each one a little bit. Confidence (coughs) is the faith element in our practice. We who've been raised in a Christian or Judeo-Christian culture, we have a particular understanding of faith uh, that sometimes uh, does not accurately reflect the confidence needed in this type of practice. Faith, we're not talking about uh, the blind faith of uh, believe in me and I'll uh, give you what you need, so to speak. It's not that type of faith that we need. What we need is a confidence in ourself, a confidence in our teacher, confidence in the actual practice that we're doing. And that confidence needs to be based on our experience, not based on willy-nilly pie in the sky, but it needs to be based on what we have directly experienced in our own life. And so we can't have, at the beginning of our practice, great confidence in something that we haven't experienced. We start with just a little inkling of, well, maybe this is so. Maybe I I have some sense that this might be a useful practice. Or this teacher might be someone who seems to know what he or she is talking about. And I feel myself, well, I have some confidence that I can do the practice. We don't know yet because we haven't practiced to such a degree that we feel fulfilled. But with a little bit of confidence, we can begin to practice. When we have that little bit of confidence, it begins to settle the mind down. We live in America where Spiritual practices are like, are as numerous as uh, different kinds of cars. You know, you you can go shopping for uh, a different spiritual practice each week, if you like. And it's hard to know, and the mind gets quite agitated when it's in shopping mode. Not having really any idea just which practice is going to do it for us. Maybe a little bit of Dzogchen, 
maybe a little bit of vipassana, maybe a little shamanistic studies, and a little bit of a little workshop here in the weekend there. The mind gets get very agitated, very confused. But when we have investigated and looked closely into what each practice or each uh, technique is talking about, and we come to some understanding of it, if we can have some confidence in one of them, the mind begins to settle down. Confidence or faith has that um, characteristic of settling the mind from some of its agitation. So that when we have this little bit of confidence, the mind begins to get clear just from the settledness. Clarity of mind, direct result, or initial clarity of mind, direct result from some confidence. Another function of confidence is that when we have confidence in our practice or in a technique or in a teaching teacher, then it can serve as the foundation for continued interest in that practice, in that teacher, in our own development. And without that confidence, we cannot sustain our interest. We're here today, gone tomorrow. Without confidence that this practice, this teacher, this path, or I myself can make that effort, have confidence. And so this confidence is really um, an essential initial ingredient to walking the spiritual path. And it's not something that once you've got, you've got forever. Because the initial confidence and understanding or understanding that leads to confidence overcomes some degree of doubt, some degree of confusion or hesitation and doubt in the mind. But there comes times when there's difficulty in practice when that doubt will come up again. And we'll doubt that we have the ability to sit here with such a confused mind. Or we'll doubt that that teacher really knows what they're talking about, having given an answer like that to a question. Or we'll doubt that this technique or this practice can actually get a handle on the amount of confusion and the amount of uh, darkness in our own mind. And when that doubt comes our confidence is gone. And so it's important to understand that in the course of our spiritual practice, there are going to be times of great confidence and determination and uh, faith in ourselves, in our teacher, in practice. And there are going to be other times when it's very doubtful that the teacher knows anything and that I can do it. When we understand that, then we don't get so uh, strung out and so moved and affected emotionally by the presence or absence of confidence. (coughs) Some years ago I was in Burma and after I'd been there for about two or three, three years I think, 
uh, one Burmese monk, an elder monk who had been to America for three months teaching, came to the monastery where I was staying in Rangoon. And he heard that the, I was there, that there was an American monk staying in the monastery. So he sent someone and asked if I would come see him. So I went to see him and uh, he didn't speak very much English. I didn't speak very much Burmese and we had a very poor translator. But we could c communicate a little bit. So he said, well, how long have you been here? And I said, oh, I've been here about three years. And he was quite surprised because at that time in Burma, the most you could get, the, the longest visa you could get was for about three months. But I kept getting extensions and through some good luck, I was able to stay a little longer. And uh, he said, oh, three years. He said, gee, to stay here three years, you must have a lot of confidence or a lot of faith. And I said, well, sometimes I feel like I have a lot of confidence and faith and I want to practice. And other times I feel like I don't have any. And he said, ah, this is even better. He said, because when your faith or when your confidence is down, not present, and you don't have any confidence in yourself, and you don't have any confidence in your teacher, and you don't have any confidence in your practice, and yet you stay in there and keep practicing, then this really strengthens your confidence. And so it's good to go through those swings of confidence and no confidence. It really strengthens your mind, and it develops your uh, spiritual capabilities in your spiritual path. But faith alone, confidence, is not enough. It's not sufficient just to be confident, just to have faith in your teacher or yourself or the teaching. You actually need to do something with that confidence. And with that confidence, one can begin to make effort or endeavor to do the practice. Whatever practice it is, and in this case we're talking about insight, but whatever you intend to do in life, whether it's a spiritual practice or not, once you have confidence that you want to do something or can, uh, then you have to make effort, even if it's buying a house or a car. It doesn't happen just by wanting or having confidence that you can do it. You actually have to do something. Same with spiritual practice. You need to arouse some determination and energy in the mind. And how do we do that? One thing that seems to be necessary or seems to be essential for most of us is some sense of urgency. Spiritual practice is difficult. Let's acknowledge that right at the beginning. And we wouldn't do it unless we felt we needed to. And it's that sense of, I need to do this. I need to learn how to practice. I need to learn how to meditate. I need to get a handle on my anxiety, my frustration, my fear, my anger, my whatever it is. And that sense of urgency, that sense of now is the time to do what's got to be done, is what... Um, arouses or propels us, generates the energy based on our confidence. 
And you might ask yourself, why is it some people never get to spiritual practice? No urgency in their life. No necessity for it. And so, it doesn't happen. But for all of us that are here, there has been some sense. And it may be weak, it may be strong, it may be very obvious, it may not be so obvious. There is some urgency to be here. Something has brought us here this weekend. And when you look within yourself, you may discover what it is. Why is it so urgent to sit here in utter agony for so many hours today? It's not because it's fun. You need it. There's some, some, some part of you needs to wake up. And some part of you recognizes that. And you're here. Energy, effort, making the endeavor is a really tricky subject to talk about in meditation practice because we in America are great strivers. We decide what we want and then we go get it. Whether it's a degree, a car, or material goods, or knowledge of some sort, or whatever it is, we are great strivers. We have really learned how to harness our willpower to get results. Unfortunately, it doesn't work in spiritual practice. So, the effort, the energy that's actually needed is not one of striving for some result, but it's the effort or the energy to be present. To just be here right now. Not to be here tomorrow or later or next week or a year from now, but right now. Only right now. It doesn't take much energy to be here right now. And that's all the energy that you need. That's all the effort you need to be here. But we misunderstand the, the whole path of practice and think that somewhere stretched out between here and somewhere in the future is our spiritual path and that we've got to arouse tremendous energy and effort to walk that path from here to there. It's not necessary. The spiritual practice and the spiritual path is only here, now. We only need the energy to be here. Moment after moment. So the real key to the energy or the effort necessary for spiritual practice is not how much and what quantity so much as it is what balance of mind is necessary to just be here. To just, if you're feeling sleepy, it's a little bit of energy to overcome sleepiness. If you're feeling restless, it's a little too much energy and you need to back off a little bit. So it's the balance of energy that we're really playing with, the balance of our effort. It's the direction, it's where we apply our effort and our energy that really matters in spiritual practice.
when I was in Burma again, I went and at this particular monastery, they start you out on a very rigorous schedule of about 20 hours of practice a day and four hours of sleep. And uh, that's, you know, the first few weeks they ask you, how many hours did you sleep last night? And if it's more than four, you're dismissed pretty quickly. But that's just the nature of practice there. And uh, I somehow got it into my head that good spiritual practice was being able to sit on my cushion for long periods of time, you know, through utter agony, you know, for two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, whatever. So I started developing my ability to sit with great pain and to thinking that that was the energy, that was the effort, that was the type of effort needed to wake up. And uh, after a couple of weeks, I was into good pain in long sittings, and I was reporting it to my teacher every day. And I'd go and say, oh, I'm sitting, and I had this great pain, and I watched this pain for so many hours. And he let me report like this for some number of weeks. <laughs> and then one day he said, do you know why you have so much pain? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, you sit too long. <laughs> It's not how long you can sit still. It's the balance of mind in sitting. And so he said, you need to learn how to balance that degree of concentration and energy. You need to walk more. You want to sit a long time? You've got to walk a long time. Balance, balance, balance. So that's the type of effort, that's the type of energy you need in practice, is a balanced effort. One of the teachers that I teach with uses the story of a tightrope walker. How much energy does a tightrope walker need walking across the tightrope? Well, needs quite a lot, but needs it in a very balanced way. It's not so much energy, but it's the delicacy of the balance of your energy. So with confidence in ourselves, in our teacher, in our practice, technique, whatever it is, then we're willing, with a sense of urgency, to make some effort, to make some attempt at waking up, being present with this moment's experience. And what happens when we do that? As we develop the energy, we, as we get a sense of urgency and we, we develop some mental power, some mental energy to be present, we begin to notice, well, what's happening? And in the sitting, we, we focus our attention or we turn our attention to the breath. In the walking, we turn our attention to the movement of the legs and we begin to see what's actually happening. We begin to focus, we begin to connect, we try to connect our attention to the breath, the in-breath, the, the rising and falling of the abdomen, the in-breath, out-breath of the nostrils. We begin to see, the mind begins to notice. We begin to observe what's actually happening. That ability to see, that ability of the mind to see experience, for the mind to know and observe is mindfulness. 
the third of the spiritual faculties. I've talked about, in giving the instructions today, I talked about focusing or turning your attention to the primary object of the breath and connecting your attention to it. That connecting is very important because if we don't actually connect our attention to the experience, we'll never know it. And not only do we need to connect our attention, we need to sustain our attention. So connecting and sustaining our attention to the meditation object, that movement of the belly, that sensations at the tip of the nostrils, is essential for clear seeing, for observing what's actually happening. When we can connect and sustain our attention, steady the mind for that brief moment of a rising or an in-breath, a second or two, we can connect and sustain our attention on it. It's as if we come face to face with that experience. And as we develop the ability to come face to face with the breath, we also develop the ability to come face to face with emotions, memories, thoughts, plans, other physical sensations in the body, the whole vast array of what it is to be human. We develop the ability to see clearly what's happening. How can we be free if we don't know what we're attached to? The first step is to see where we are on the path, to see what our fears are, to see where our mind goes, to see what our fantasy futures are, to see what our shameful past is, to see what is going on in this body, where we're holding, where we're tight. This is what we need to see by connecting and sustaining our attention on the experience. It happens to all of us. As soon as we get some clarity of mind, some ability to connect with our experience and stay with it, we find great discomfort in the body. Pain. And uh, there isn't anybody here that didn't sit with really uncomfortable pain today. It's the nature of the body at times. And when we focus and when we look clearly, carefully, that's what we see. And learning how to deal with pain is in, uh, a, a quite necessary, essential uh, thing to learn. Initially, when we come in contact with pain, you know, the knee that's just on fire, or the back that's like a board, or the neck that's all got a meat hook through it, we have these pains. At first, it's just a massive, solid pain, and the mind is so reactive to it, so afraid of it, so disliking of it, that the mind won't even get close. The mind just 
skitters away before you can contact it. It's like uh, splashing water on a hot griddle. It just skitters off without really landing. Well, pain is really hot and the mind just skitters off when it comes close. It takes some persistence, takes some real perseverance, some care to gently bring the mind close to that level of discomfort. It's not something you can just jam your mind into pain and make it go away or, uh, you know, just enduring it, gritting your teeth and enduring it is not the way to get close to pain, but rather to gently bring the mind to it around the edges, skirt around the edges, begin to explore around the pain. Take a quick look inside and see where, what's right in the center of that pain, but don't expect to stay there for long. And slowly, as you, as you get comfortable with the periphery of pain, you can open to the outer extremities of it and gradually move the mind into the center of pain. And what happens to this solid block of pain that stretches from hip to ankle? We begin to notice that there's some movement in there, some, some shifting, some change, some uh, fluxing, and some uh, tightness, some tension, some pulling, some stretching, some bubbling, some heat, some of this, some stabbing, some ripping, some tearing. Some... It's a mass of change. It's not so solid. And with steadiness of mind, we can begin to approach the solidity of experience and see its composite and fluxing nature. Steadiness of mind. The ability to connect and sustain our attention. It's that sustaining our attention on the experience that allows the mind to open and accept that experience. So what is it that we learn to observe, that we are mindful of? It is said in the text, in the Buddha taught, that there are four foundations for mindfulness. Four things, four experiences that mindfulness rests on. The first of these is what we use as the primary object, it's our body. It's our material, physical material experience. The movement of the breath, the stretching and tightness and tension of the abdomen, the tingling sensations at the nostrils, pain, heat, movement of the legs in walking, the physical body, the experience of it. First foundation of mindfulness. The second foundation of mindfulness is what's called feeling. And it's not emotion in this case, but it's the pleasant or unpleasant quality to each and every experience that we have. And if you look carefully at your experience of your mind, of your body, you will discover that there is a tone to it in each moment, a tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. It's hard to see a neutral experience because 
when things are okay and neutral, we tend to fall asleep. When they're very unpleasant, we know it. When they're very pleasant, we know it. And sometimes that's all we can know of our experience, is that it's very unpleasant, or that it's quite pleasant. And that's another foundation for mindfulness, another foundation for observing what's actually happening, the basis for observing. So the body or physical material experience, feelings. The third is consciousness itself. The nature of the mind to think. And who hasn't been thinking today? Into the past, remembering. Into the future, planning. Into fantasies, fantasizing. It's the nature of the mind to keep really busy. And when we begin to pay attention, as we do today, we begin to discover that the mind is rarely home. It's on the go all the time. Those thoughts, those fantasies, those uh, futures, those memories are all the foundation for mindfulness. We can learn to observe them happening without buying in. We can train ourselves to know planning is happening, remembering is happening, fantasizing happening, without getting caught in the story of that particular memory, that particular fantasy, that particular plan. Training the mind to observe what's happening rather than indulging in what's happening. So consciousness is the uh, third foundation for mindfulness. And the fourth is the contents of mind or mental states. These we more commonly know as the hindrances, the factors of enlightenment, the emotions that we have. When we feel frustrated, when we feel disappointed, when we feel joy, when we feel confident, when we feel loving, when we feel hatred, when we feel depressed. These are the contents of our mind. These are the contents of our consciousness. They too are a foundation for awakening, for observing, for developing the ability to know what's happening, for mindfulness. So these are the four foundations of mindfulness. The body, pleasant or unpleasant feelings, consciousness of thoughts, plans, fantasies, remembering, and mental states, or the emotion. As we develop the ability to know our experience, to observe it, and to recognize it, to see it, as we develop the ability to um, extend the continuity of attention from one moment to the next, to the next, to the next, rising, to falling, to rising, to falling, to thinking, to planning, to the knee pain, back to the back, back to the abdomen, back to the breath, rising, falling. And we develop continuity of attention. The mind gets collected. The mind in all of its fragmented pieces 
that is strung out across the universe of the past and the future, we pull it in. We pull in these little bits and pieces from this memory we bring back our mind, from this plan we bring back our mind, from this part of the body we bring. We collect our mind in one place. We focus the mind. More of the mind gets collected and focused on this experience right now. It's as if we take a magnifying glass, a magnifying lens, and focus our mind on just what it is we want to look at. And that's really what happens in the, in the continuity of mindfulness, is the mind does not have the opportunity to fragment and scatter to other experience. It stays together, comes together, collects. This is the one-pointedness of mind. It can only come about when we are mindful or observing with some continuity. The mind becomes concentrated. When the mind is concentrated, when we look at something through a magnifying lens, we see more detail of what it is we're looking at. When the mind becomes concentrated, whatever it is we look at, we see more clearly. We see more details. We gain more knowledge. So if I hold up my hand here and say, well, what do you see? You see a hand. And if you come closer and you look again, you can see four or five fingers. And if you get even closer, you can see all the knuckles. And if you get really close, you can see the, the prints, the fingerprints, and the lines. And if you get really close, you might be able to see the pores. And if you use a magnifying lens, you can even see closer than that. More knowledge about the same experience. Concentration is like putting on glasses to see what's already there. We've lived our life for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. We've been breathing every day of our life. And have we really noticed it yet? Did you notice something about your breath today that you never noticed before? Or as we practice into the night and tomorrow, you may begin to discover experiences in the body, experiences in the mind that you never noticed before. It's not that they haven't been happening. Uh, they've been happening. But the mind has not been powerful enough to see them. When the mind gets concentrated, we see more clearly. We see more deeply. We gain more knowledge, more wisdom, more understanding. And it's this understanding that frees the mind from bondage. Because as we see and look carefully into our experience, we begin to discover that there are characteristics to all of our experience. Everything is changing. Do you know what that means? That means that everything is changing. That means that nothing is going to stay still. 
Your body is not going to stay the way it is now. Your mind is not going to stay the way it is now. Thank goodness. And yet, we don't live with that knowledge. We live with the endeavor and striving to keep our body youthful and strong and healthy and, you know, like it's 19 years old still. It's not going to stay that way. Let go of that one. Free your mind from that bondage. Very simple example. Think of what's going on in the mind. How attached are we to ideas of who we are? Ideas about what we want that will make us happy. Ideas about our spouse or intended spouse or who we would like to have as a spouse that will make us happy. Our mind changes. We can know this intellectually, can't we? Everything changes. Why get attached? Why get stuck on something that's going to change anyway? We know this intellectually, but we can't let go. We can't live with that knowledge until we experience it directly. This practice takes you to that experience. Direct experience of the change of all phenomena. When you see that, it's not a struggle to let go. You see that you can't hold on anyway. Seeing into the nature of impermanence is a major step in spiritual practice, one which insight practice can take you to. These spiritual faculties or these controlling faculties of the mind that I've been speaking about, confidence, giving rise to and being the basis for our making effort and, and arousing energy to be aware to observe, to look carefully at our life to see what's actually going on here in this body, in this mind. And when we do, with some continuity, look carefully, the mind collects and focuses and sees more deeply into our experience. Sees more deeply into what it really is to be a human being. Sees more deeply into the nature of our bondage to this body, to our mind, to our ideas, and sees more deeply into the nature of freedom, of liberation, of enlightening the mind. This practice is not insignificant. And an appreciation of the profundity of the Buddha's teaching of guiding the mind into itself to free itself from bondage. And just getting an appreciation for the profundity of that is worth your effort. Well, I have talked enough. Let's um, just sit for a couple of minutes
Or if you're lying down, you can just lie like that just for a couple of minutes and let settle this whole talk. This talk was given by Steve Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on March 6, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.